There we go. Hello, and welcome to Creepy Kentucky. I'm Quinn. And I'm Laura. And uh, is there anything we want to talk about uh, before we uh, start this? Like um, what you were doing outside (laughs) (laughs) earlier today? I was building a duck crate. Ooh. Because we now have five ducks. <gasps> nice. Oh, yes. So, cool. so uh, we have five ducks and some amount of chickens. We lost count. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Depends on how many of them show up. Yeah, it's more than 20. Whoa. <laughs> Okay. Yes. Wow. So farm is is growing. Oh wow. Next year we'll probably be getting ready for goats. Yes. 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 Oh my Which god. You know I am like the most excited about. Uh yeah, you should be. I don't blame <laughs> you. Oh my god, that's gonna be awesome. Yes. Oh, oh my god. I'm so, so that's what I was doing. I'm so excited for you. Cannot you cannot imagine because I know how um, I know how happy you're going to be when you get goats. Yes, I will probably cry. Yeah. I don't blame you. <laughs> I don't blame you at all. Anything else we want to talk about? That's pretty exciting. I may have to like I'm gonna rest on those laurels for a while because that was awesome. Yes, yeah. I I thought that would be fun to drop on you while we were recording. Yeah, that's awesomeness. Um, I don't know. I don't... What is that crazy news out of Georgetown? Oh, yeah, that was... That's been weird. Yeah. And strange and... Which, what was really weird, so if you don't live in Kentucky, you don't know what we're talking about. Um, it was the deputy... Right. That got shot. Right. During yeah. a traffic accident. Right. right. And then the dude ran off and stole someone else's car. Yeah. Did he shoot them too? Or did I he think just. He did. Or did I think he, he just. shot them too. Yeah. Or did he just steal their car? Well, he definitely stole their car. Yeah. And then they found him at like some bar and arrested <laughs> him. Well, yeah. Because that's where I always hang out after I've committed a, a major felony. Right, is right. it a bar yeah, in front of everyone? That's where you go. That's where you go. Uh, but what was really weird is about the second-ish morning that they were covering it, another cop came to my mind. Yeah. Jason Ellis. Yeah. Oh, and then Jason. they started talking about him on LAX 1918. Uh, oh, like, Jason. I still, yes. I still feel terrible that they haven't found who killed him. I know. I, mean, I was just, like, man, they caught this guy so fast. So fast, yeah. And they still have not caught who killed Jason Ellis. No. Nope. That's another subject for another day, though. Yeah. <laughs> That's a whole other episode. Yeah. Or three or four. four. Yeah, we might have to, like, team up with with that one. Yeah. That would be a fun, like, thing to do. Have a whole series on Bardstown. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We could spend a lot of time talking about Bardstown. We could spend years talking about Bardstown. Oof. Yeah. 
I mean, yeah. Yeah, and then there was that West Vir- that cop that worked in West Virginia that got shot. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that was that was terrible, too. Oh, my. Oh, I heard... Mm, I heard this really terrible case from... I think it was... Where was it? Texas, I want to say? But it was, like... It wasn't murder or anything. It was just some poor lady who worked at Arby's. That, uh... Was found dead in the freezer. Oh, oh God! Oh, by her son. (gasps) Oh God! Yeah. Um. Oh no. The push button on the inside of the freezer. Yeah. That lets you out if you get shut in. Right. Was broken. Of course it was. And had been broken. Uh yeah. And they and, and they knew it was broken and didn't fix it because they didn't think it was important. That's exactly what I said. I said, you know what? I want to bet they told corporate about that repeatedly. Yeah. And they didn't do anything. Yeah, yeah either corporate or the owner, one or the other. Like, right. I'm sure. Someone yeah. knew about it. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And didn't do anything about it. Nope. Not a goddamn thing. Yep. Not a goddamn thing. Well, what's really sad is I can believe that the corporate wouldn't do anything. Oh, yeah. Or the owner. Yeah, either one of them. from experience. Yeah. Yep. We do know quite a bit about corporate being... Yeah. You know, my uh, where I work, my uh, credit card reader broke about three months ago, and they still haven't fixed it. Oh, that's lovely. So we're still running on that stupid backup system. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, I mean, well, yeah, I believe it. What came to my mind was the summer that the AC was broke. Oh, yeah. And you kept, look, you kept like, making notes of how hot it got. Yeah, it got to 90 back yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah. And they just thought we were being dramatic. Overly dramatic. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Sure. Anyway, yeah. let's hear about some Cleveland... Uh, uh, speaking of overly dramatic, let's, right. talk, let's talk about a serial killer. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, last week we ended with all of the... So we finished up with the 13th victim, 13th right. and final victim. So this this episode, we're going to talk about some theories and suspects. Yes. Okay. So. Because this one's unsolved. Yes. Yes. Um, so we know, we know being in like 2023, we know that this person who did all of this was a serial killer. I mean, that seems, yes, exactly. Uh, In the 1930s, that concept really had not made its way into the, what you might think, the lexicon of police departments. Right. So. That wasn't until, like, the 60s. Yeah. Bundy was. Yeah. Having his fun. Yeah. Oh, God. (laughs) We we still got to go to that crime museum. I know this is like totally off topic, but we still got to go to that crime museum down in 
uh, where Gatlinburg, it, yeah. Pigeon Forge, where the hell it is. Yeah, I and I really want to go. Yeah, and it's only just to see the, the Beetle. The Beetle, yeah, yeah. There is something else though. One, there's some, I don't know. I'll figure it out. Maybe I'll put it in the notes. I'm not that good at remembering things, so probably not. So right. yeah, no one's ever gonna know what else we're gonna look at. Oh well, okay. So just everything at the true crime. Everything, yeah. Um, therefore, their search for a killer usually started with those people who were closest to the victims, and now we we know here again in 2023 that in this case that probably was not the place to start. Right. Also, not everyone agrees that all the bodies were actually victims of one killer. And that's one of the theories is that there were multiple killers, like copycats and things like that, who were operating. Yeah. yeah people so. just kind of killing each other. Right. And making them and being right. like, oh, that person did it. Yeah. Well, or, I killed that yeah. other guy. Yeah. They're just going to. Not me. Yeah. Not me. Oh, no. Never. I would. I would never do such a horrendous thing. Never, ever. So, there were, however, some suspects. The first one, the first one, and he was actually, his name is Frank Dolezal, and he was the only person ever arrested and charged with any of the torso killings. Oh. And okay. he, he was a Oh, so, so a private investigator named Pat Lyons got access to the police and coroner's reports and began making um, his own deductions, unfortunately. <clears throat> so he did not go to Elliot Ness with his deductions. He did not go to Peter Merlo with his deductions. He went to a guy named Martin O'Donnell, who was the Cuyahoga County Sheriff. Um, yeah, so for a while they couldn't find anything, but eventually they decided just to assume that the victims, at least the identified ones, knew each other, which the police had not been able to prove. Um, but they knew each other somehow. Yeah, somehow, some mysterious way. They were all in a secret club yeah, together. They were in the Illuminati. Like, that's yep. all there is to it. Okay. Yep. So, oh, they were exactly. Oh, yeah. Um, so eventually they ended up at a dive bar where Flo Palillo, Rose Wallace, who may have been a victim, and Edward Andrasi all hung out and they may have even uh, drunk together. But at this bar, uh, Lyons and O'Donnell heard stories about a guy named Frank who not only owned several butcher knives, but went around threatening people with them. Because that's what you do. Yeah. yeah. When a butcher, yep. yeah, when a butcher murder is murder is running loose, that's what you do is threaten people with butcher knives because you know. I'm gonna butcher you up. Yeah. So he was eventually identified as Frank Dolezal, a bricklayer who'd once worked in a slaughterhouse. Um, okay, so he would have that knowledge yeah. on some kind of bone structure. Uh huh. Um, he once lived near the place where Flo Palillo's remains were first found, as well as the company where the patchwork quilt came from. 
And he'd also frequented the bar where Palilla, Wallace, and Andrassi hung out. Um, so Pat Lyons, the private detective, he got really obnoxious while he was investigating another bar because he was drunk. And the owner of that bar called Peter Merlot, who came down to the bar to see what was going on. So he got an idea of what this private detective was up to. So Sheriff O'Donnell went ahead and had Frank Dolezal arrested so that Merlot and, and Ornes couldn't get the credit for it. What a motherfucker. Yeah. So after what can only be euphemistically called be, be euphemistically called intense questioning uh -oh. <clears throat> yeah Dolezal confessed uh, and after that evidence against him suddenly turned up oh look yeah. at that yeah weird he and Flo Palillo uh, had actually lived together for a while and had, had even been seen together a few days before she disappeared. Um, there were dark stains on the floor of his uh, apartment. Well, imagine that. Yeah, which chemist uh, G.V. Lyons, who coincidentally, and I'm sure this was a total coincidence, was Pat Lyons, the detective's brother, Oh, yeah, that's a total, yeah, total coincidence. Claimed was blood. Uh -huh. So, some of Dolezal's former neighbors claimed they'd seen Flo Palillo, Rose Wallace, and Edward Andrassi in Dolezal's apartment. And people who... And they were all in his they apartment? They were all in his apartment, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. And people who claimed he'd threatened them with a knife came forward. So... How So while the sheriff collected all sorts of, you know, accolades for having supposedly caught the torso killer, yep. Merlot was furious because he had actually thoroughly questioned Dolezal earlier and he had dismissed him as a suspect. I feel like that was kind of a coerced confession. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Um, exactly. Because Merlot knew that reports of Dolezal being threatening were being exaggerated. Dolezal was actually very nice and well-liked in the neighborhood. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Merlot was told not to complain about the arrest too loudly, but soon the press were given to understand that Dolezal's confession, i.e. how he'd murdered Flo Palillo, uh, just couldn't have happened the way Dolezal said it did in the confession. So, Dole, just as the case against him was collapsing, Dolezal withdrew his confession and made another one, which just as quickly collapsed. Um, he was taken, uh, he was given a lie detector test, which supposedly showed he'd actually killed Palillo. Although the man administering the test had not asked about why he changed his story or indeed about the elements of those stories. So no one's getting yeah. like, oh, maybe he didn't do it. Yeah. No one's having second thoughts yet. Yeah. No. Uh, 
Reporters noticed when he was taken to get the test that he'd clearly been beaten up. Ah. Mm. So, yeah, what a surprise. So six days after his arrest, he was arraigned for first-degree murder. Of course he was. Yeah. He'd signed a third confession, which Merlo quietly pointed out to the press was just as bogus as the other two. But they didn't care because Uh they had someone behind bars, someone to blame for it. Yeah. Um, At this point, public opinion actually began to turn against uh, the Cuyahoga County Sheriff. I know. So Dolezal's brother hired an attorney who pointed out to the press all the legal irregularities surrounding Dolezal's arrest and captivity. Um, He launched an investigation into the physical and mental mistreatment Dolezal had received, uh, as did the uh, ACLU. The American Bar Association asked Sheriff O'Donnell to appear before them to answer questions about the situation. Uh, The press uh, turned against uh, Pat Lyons as well. There was a second arraignment wherein the charge of murder was downgraded to a single manslaughter charge. And uh, as he was leaving the courtroom, Dolezal held up his bruised arm and yelled, they said they didn't beat me. Oh, my God. Okay. Here comes horrible news. Oh, no. This is a horrible part. Okay. On August 22nd, the two deputy sheriffs who were supposed to be guarding him in his prison cell, uh, coincidentally, both left their posts. Oh. Oh, dear. When Yeah. When one of them came back, they he found Dolezal hanging from a makeshift rope. Uh, The deputy called for help, but Dolezal had died. Uh, Immediately, it was clear that this wasn't just a simple suicide. For one thing, the 5'8 Dolezal supposedly hanged himself from a hook that was 5'7 inches off the ground. Uh, One person said he hanged himself with toweling. Another said it was bedding. And also, why did both guards leave? Right. Yeah. So today, hardly anyone believes Frank Dolezal was the torso killer. The question is, why did Martin O'Donnell believe it? <sighs> and two people who saw autopsy photos around the year 2000 believed it was obvious that Dolezal had been strangled with a thin wire. Oh my. Yeah. In 2010, James Bedell, who is a preeminent researcher on the torso case, and his staff placed a marker over Dolezal's grave saying, quote, rest now. Oh. Yeah. That's so nice. Something something nice came out of it, thank God. Yeah, at least someone was nice to this poor man. Yeah. So. I'm having a hard time believing he killed anybody. Oh, yeah, exactly. The, I don't know. Uh, Willie Johnson, he's the second suspect. He was arrested in 1942. He had been seen dumping a trunk and a satchel in the Kingsbury Run area, and the trunk was later revealed to have the, t- the headless torso of a black woman 
Marie Wilson in it. Willie, yeah. So, I mean, you can see, yeah. Willie was from Arkansas, where he'd worked several low-paying jobs and had several run-ins with the police. He'd come to Cleveland in 1936 via Fort Wayne, Indiana, where he'd shot a man in a bar fight. Of course. And as far as Marie Wilson was concerned, he claimed to have knocked the victim unconscious, then gone to bed, waking up to find her in pieces on his floor. So he just woke up and she was chopped up. Yeah. I don't know what happened, officer. I, I don't just woke know. up and she was like this. Yeah. Weird. It's weird. Inexplicable. I don't Um, know what happened. Yeah. Cleveland police had supposedly connected him to a couple of the torso victims. Um, He was convicted of killing Wilson and executed in March 1944, still proclaiming his innocence. Um, At the time, several authorities claimed he could have been the torso killer, but today most people dismiss Johnson as a serious suspect. Okay. All right. So, number three, Ooh. the third suspect. Uh, in 1942, there was a murder in Maysville, Kentucky, that was oh. somewhat similar to the torso killings. A man, oh. yeah, a man wanted his neighbor to sell him some hunting dogs. The neighbor refused, so the man killed him anyway and took the dog. Oh, lovely. Um, That's what you do. He took this a bit further. <laughs> he took this killing a bit further than the torso killer did any of his killings. So oh, he dismembered the guy, ground him up, and sold the meat to a local sausage company. Oh, my. Yeah. Um, he was convicted and sentenced to prison. However, the man's brother knew the governor at the time, so he was released. Uh, yeah, that's great. So safe. Uh, a reporter yeah. from yeah, a reporter from a Cleveland newspaper went to Maysville with a former assistant to Elliot Ness to interview the man. They reportedly had a very strained conversation with him. What a surprise! Uh, yeah. yeah. When they ran a background check on the killer, they found out that he had family in the Cleveland area and was in Cleveland at the time of the killings. Uh, the two men got hair sam- samples of the killer from the man's barber, but no one knows what happened to the tests or to the man they called the Kentucky Butcher. Oh. Yeah. So, our number four suspect is the Newcastle Railroad Killer. Um, oh. Yeah. Uh, in 1921, an elderly woman was killed in her home close to the railroad in Newcastle, Pennsylvania. Her head was nearly severed and nothing was taken from her home. Two years later, the headless, limbless torso of a young girl floated down the river past the railroad. Uh, from 1924 to 1934, four more people were brutally killed in this manner. Um, in 1934, 1,000 people in Newcastle searched the swamp for clues, and although they found nothing, the murder stopped for a while. Um, in 1939, about the time they stopped in Cleveland, they started again, 
And by 1942, six more people had been killed. Uh, A man named Robert Mancini was intrigued by the fact that the murders in Newcastle stopped while the murders in Cleveland occurred, um, as well as by the similarities between the murders in the two areas. He, He deduced that a railroad worker would be a perfect suspect, for they would know the areas and the people who rode the rails. Um, Mancini searched until he found the name of a suspect who lived in the Newcastle area and worked on the railroads for over 20 years. Um, in 1942, right after a murder, the suspect joined the army and six weeks later, uh, he was killed in a latrine explosion. I mean, I don't know. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, When Mancini applied to the state of Louisiana for the death certificate, the state initially refused, and only pressure from the original Unsolved Mysteries TV show led to the certificate's release. Oh, hey. Yeah. Weirdly, there was virtually no information on the certificate, no next of kin, no social security number, nothing. There's no way of knowing whether this man was the torso killer or not, but the story behind him and the search for him is definitely intriguing. Yeah, yeah. that I think that's my favorite theory. Yeah, yeah, it's so pretty. Far. It's pretty good. Um, it is. Another theory that I didn't write down because at the time I didn't think it was that great. And then I saw several people actually thought it might be true was that the person that killed the Black Dahlia was also could be the torso killer. Uh, yeah, I can kind of see it. Yeah. Um, the, like they pointed out to the fact that there was like dismemberment, torture, um, there was draining of blood, there was a killing with a butcher knife, so... There are some there are some similarities. There are also some not similarities. So it could be, it could not be. Right. But so now we're gonna go on to the um, the suspect that Elliot Ness believed was actually the one who uh, did it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. All right. So in May, yeah, maybe. Well, maybe. I still kind of like the the Newcastle one, and you know, we know that that's the one that Merlo would have believed is true, right? Because he spent all that time pretending to be a hobo. So that's right. Yeah. Um, So in May 1938, Elliot Ness brought a secret suspect to a room in what was then the Cleveland Hotel. At first, he and his few confidants had to wait for the man to sober up. But after that, they wanted to ask him about the torso killings. Um, So Ness brought in Dr. Leonard Keeler who was the inventor of the Keeler polygraph to test the suspect. Oh, look at that. Yeah. Afterwards, Keeler told Ness that the man was guilty. In fact, Keeler's comment was, quote, I may as well throw my machine out the window if I say anything else. Oh, okay. Yeah. 
Other tests were given to the suspect and all pointed to the same conclusion. However, this wasn't the same as actual evidence, and they had to let the suspect go. Right. In later years, and here comes a name, and it's a fake name, but it's still a name you'll enjoy. Oh, I'm excited. Okay. In later years, Elliot Ness referred to this man as, quote, Gaylord Sondheim, unquote. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. (laughs) I mean, you know. All right. Gaylord. And he felt, he claimed, so he, he referred to him to his biographer as this name and claimed that he felt certain that the man was the torso killer. However, this Gaylord guy's cousin was a local bigwig who protected him, and the man eventually ended up in a mental home. And we now know that Elliot Ness's suspect was Dr. Francis Edward Sweeney. Oh, okay. Sweeney was born in Cleveland on May 5th, 1894. Um, Both sets of his grandparents had immigrated from Ireland. He had five brothers and sisters. Um, the family suffered several tragedies. One of his brothers died at the age of three. Another died at the age of 25 of uremia. Oh. Yeah, sounds bad. His Yeah. yeah. His mother, Delia, died suddenly at the age of 41. And his last brother fell off of a roof and died of his injuries in September 1939. His father was put in a mental home in 1920 and died in 1923 of, quote, apoplexy and, quote, psychosis with cerebral arterial sclerosis. Oh. So, however, Francis was determined to make something of himself. He joined the army in World War I and worked in the medical corps. In the years after he returned, he became a doctor. He married in 1927 to a 27-year-old nurse, Mary Sokol, and they had two sons, Francis Jr. and James. Um, although at that point things looked pretty bright, the future would not be. In, it always seems yeah, that way. Yeah, especially if you might be a serial killer. Uh, yep. In 1934... Um, Mary filed for divorce, claiming that Sweeney was a heavy drinker who mistreated her, then would vanish for weeks on end. In 1933, she filed a petition claiming that she feared for her husband's sanity. He spent a week in the hospital, then was discharged into her care. Uh, Yeah, she soon filed a second petition, but that was dismissed. And she moved out of her house and in with her sister. She's like, I do not want to take care of this man. No. (laughs) Not at all. I want him out of my life. Yeah. And in 1936, her divorce was granted as well as full custody. Um, Yay. So, Sweeney was not heard from again until uh, February 11th, 1938. When an acquaintance filed another petition with the court claiming that Sweeney was not in his right mind. Uh, uh Uh-oh. 
His older sister filed a complaint as well, but both were dismissed by the same judge who dismissed his wife's complaints years earlier. Huh. His daddy was a big wig. Yeah. Okay, so on March... Yeah, on March 17th, 1938, a dog in Bogart, Ohio, which is just south of Sandusky, brought home a severed leg and foot. Oh, my God. Yeah. I cannot imagine what I would do if Atticus came right up to me carrying a foot with a leg. Yeah. (laughs) He'd be horrifying. He'd be awful proud of himself, though. (laughs) Be like, oh my god! Look at this! Look what I look what I found! Why are you crying? <laughs> look what I found, mom! Mom, look! Wait, what? why? Why are you pu- Why are you puking? <laughs> <Where's the rest laughs> <of the body? laughs> Wake up! Uh, so, I mean, no, if Boo brought it back, he'd be hitting me with it. Yeah. It's fine. It's fine. It's a new toy. Look at my new toy. Yeah. The sheriff had no record of any missing persons nor any clues to go on, so he contacted Cleveland authorities. Uh, This is what brought Francis Sweeney to the attention of the Cleveland police. He'd been in and out of the soldier and sailor's home in Sandusky often. Um, A few months after that, the interrogation in the Cleveland hotel room took place. Uh, Which makes sense, according to what his wife said, that he was a heavy drinker and they had to wait for him to sober up. Exactly. Yep. Pieces are starting to click together. Yeah. Uh, so after that, after the interrogation in August, victims number 11 and 12 were placed within full view of Elliot Ness's office window. Two days after that, uh, the burning of the shantytown took place. And a week after that, Sweeney applied officially to live in the soldier and sailor's home. A note was placed in his file to inform the Cleveland and Sandusky police whenever he left the home. Oh. Yeah. And after the death of Elliot Ness's adopted son in 1976, um, the son's widow donated the family scrapbooks to the Western Reserve Historical Society. Um, these scrapbooks contained, among other memorabilia, uh, five loose postcards and a rambling letter. And they were all addressed to Elliot Ness, but as, quote, Elliot Esophagotic Ness, El- oh. yeah, Elliot Ambu- Ambiguous Ness, and Elliot Headman Ness. Okay. The cards were decorated with pictures and articles cut out of newspapers and magazines. They had puns and cryptic messages written on them and were signed in various ways by Sweeney. These are the only communications Sweeney made to Ness which survive. 
Although Ness's wife remembers that there was a stream of cards and letters, um, Sweeney died in 1964 after having spent his life after 1938 mostly in the VA hospital system. All right. In the 1970s, a woman named Marilyn Bardsley wondered if she could write a play based on the torso killings. Um, she talked, that's, yeah. That's what you do. Yeah, of course. She talked to a musical. Could you imagine a musical based <laughs> on that? Oh, my so, God. The one that came to mind. <laughs> Sweeney. And it came to mind when you said Sweeney. Sweeney Todd, Sweeney yeah. 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 Oh my God! Maybe you could do. It. Oh Lord! It's maybe you could do. It. Get on it! Oh wait, no, it's not. It's dead. Oops. Oh my God! Uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber, come on! Come on! You wrote for the. Can't be now. You wrote for the coronation. You can do this. Come <laughs> on! Come on! Uh, so she talked to the head, the former head of the scientific bureau, who told her there was a suspect, but he refused to name the man. Uh, that was Gaylord. Yeah, Gaylord. She then met up with another na- another man named Al Archaki, who told her a peculiar tale. He had met up with a well-dressed man in a restaurant in the Kingsbury Run area. The well-dressed man kept asking him questions like, are you from around here? And do you have a wife? Um, Archaki, yeah, weird. Okay. Not normal questions okay. to be asking people. Yeah. Uh, Archaki didn't want anything to do with the well-dressed man. A few years later, Archaki was in the Ohio State Reformatory, which had uh, an arrangement with the soldier and sailor's home. Uh, So he went to the home to live in a cottage there, and he ran into the well-dressed man there. Yeah. The man introduced himself as Al Sweeney, but Archaki said his real name was Frank. And Frank would write prescriptions for Archaki in exchange for liquor. Also, Frank would be absent during the times the butcher was active. So this Marilyn, ba- <laughs> this Marilyn Bardsley called the head, the former head of the scientific division, back and said, uh, "Francis Edward Sweeney." And the response she got back from the scientific division head was, "Who gave you that name?" Oh. Yeah. Well, uh, okay. Okay. So, that, another, yeah, exactly. I mean, huh. it's not definite, but it's certainly suggestive. Um, well, very, very that's suggestive. Not you, that's not how an innocent, like, someone right. who knows that it isn't them. Right. Exactly. Respond, you know? Yeah. Like, well, if you, you said, that who's that? Who's that would be the name? Like, if you didn't know who that was and what they were talking about, you'd be just yeah, like, who? who? <laughs> who's yeah, who's I've that? I've never heard of that person before. I've never heard of them. They um, never came up on our uh, yeah. suspect list before. Yeah. So, another, not a, yeah, not another person. Name. Yeah, exactly. I don't know that person. Not, who gave you that name? Yeah. Um, That's a very guilty. Yeah. 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 Another anecdote quite possibly related to Sweeney belongs to someone, a man named Emil Fronek, who at one time was a homeless person living in Cleveland. He was walking up a Cleveland street when he found himself outside a doctor's office on the second floor of a building. 
um, a doctor was inviting him in. The doctor gave him a substantial meal, and Emil soon found himself feeling drugged. Uh-oh. Yeah, he got up and ran outside with the doctor pursuing him to the door. Uh, later, Emil took a policeman to the street where they drove up and down trying to find the building. Um, Fronek never could find it, but A, he was drugged. And right. B, Sweeney had his office in that area and on that street, but it was actually closer to a cross street. It was also uh, yeah. It was also next to an undertaker's, and there was considerable speculation that the killer must have some kind of laboratory, or at least a safe space where he could cut up the, the bodies. Yeah, and Sweeney did have some kind of arrangement with that undertaker's. Hmm. Okay. Well, this is looking more and more suspicious for Sweeney. Yeah. So. Merlo, back to people who don't believe it, Merlo talked to Sweeney in 1940. He didn't believe Sweeney was the killer. Just like the railroad killer from Newcastle had patterns that fit with the torso killing, so does Francis Sweeney's (laughs) pattern of marriage, breakup, to living in the soldiers' and sailors' home. Um, So, Francis Sweeney's cousin was Martin Sweeney, a U.S. congressman. And Martin Sweeney's daughter was married to the Cuyahoga Sheriff Martin O'Donnell, who uh, arrested Dolezal. Huh. Now, ain't that something? Yeah. I'm sure that's all a big coincidence, too. I'm sure it is. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, so as a side note about Martin Sweeney and what kind of uh, a person he was, he Uh-oh. opposed a bill in Congress to establish a peacetime draft in 1940. He believed it was an excuse to get the U.S. into a war on Britain's side. Oh, uh, dear Lord. So uh, a guy named Beverly Vincent, who was a congressman from the great commonwealth of kentucky called called him a traitor and a son of a bitch yeah Um, that's right yeah so sweeney struck at vincent and vincent struck him back and hit sweeney in the head so that's yeah that's a side note into martin sweeney and his isolationist assholery all right so, here are some last of the the last of the what and what happened to some of these people when they at the end of the case after the case was kind of over. Um, All right. So Peter Merlo left the force in 1943. He eventually set up his own detective agency, but he never stopped working on the torso case. And he died of a heart attack on his way to his office in May 1958. He was 63. Oh, my God. Yeah. Orly May, who often was one of the first responders, as we know, to the scenes of the, the body dumpings. He became the safety director of Berea. 
but not oh. not Berea, Kentucky, <laughs> a Cleveland suburb. And he died at age 70 in 1968. Uh, Emil Musil retired in 1948 and served 20 years as treasurer of the Retired Police Association. Uh, he died in, at 1970 at the age of 73. Uh, Martin Zalewski died in 1958, same year as his ex-partner Peter Merlot. Uh, Samuel Gerber remained as Cleveland coroner for 50 years. Oh my God. He became a national celebrity during the Sam Shepard trial, and he died less than six months after he retired in May 1987. Oh, man. Uh, she retired sooner. Yeah. But it'll spend 50 years yeah. doing it. Yeah. Elliot Ness's reputation, or it was the retirement that killed him. Like, once he didn't have a reason to do anything anymore. You know, that seems to happen a lot. Yeah. Like, people retire and then they're gone not yeah. much long, not much long after. Yeah. God, I hope that doesn't happen to me. Just imagine. Oh, my God. You please should, don't. Yeah, you shouldn't have quit Hustler. And I'd be like, yeah, well, I would have died at Hustler then, you asshole. <laughs> okay. You could die on the floor there, and they would just, like, oh. walk around you. Oh, I know. They wouldn't know. All right. They'd um, still be asking you where shit is. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I'm looking for one that's pink. Yeah. Where's the lube? <laughs> Ma'am. Ma'am. <laughs> Kicking you. Yeah. Party floor, ma'am. Ma'am. Get up. So, Ellie. I'm ready to check out now. Yeah. <laughs> ma'am, I really want to check out. I got to go. Ma'am. My kids are in the car. I got to go. I left, I left my baby in the car. Elliot Ness is. Yeah. I mean, not that we haven't had that happen. <laughs> I mean Okay And then you notice it Like you notice it after they after the, Like as they're getting into the car So it's too late to call the police And you're like what the fuck yeah, What the fuck yeah. She's been in here for like two hours mm-hmm. Yeah Yeah so, Elliot Ness's reputation waned due to the torso case. He ran for Cleveland mayor in 1947, but lost. And he lived in Pennsylvania until he died of a massive heart attack on May 16, 1957. And that was 30 years to the day before Gerber died. Uh, he did not live long enough to see his reputation revived with the release of the Untouchables TV show uh, starring Robert Stack. And his yeah. his ashes were scattered in uh, a pond in Lakeview Cemetery in Cleveland. Oh. Uh, Peter Merlot, well, we talked about the Black Dahlia murder. And Peter Merlot actually suspected that the Black Dahlia murder might be committed by the same person who did the torso killings. Um, but, I, I, I can kind of see that yeah, one. Yeah. But there is an Elliot Ness Museum and Festival in Cowdersport. I'm not sure how to pronounce it, but it was the town where he lived when he was when he died, where he was living. And then uh, the Great Lakes Brewery 
in Cleveland has an Elliot Ness beer, and the owner's mother had worked as his stenographer. Oh, cool. I know. They also have, like, uh, Edmund Fitzgerald beer and all that sort of stuff that's really good. Oh. Always good. Oh. But that's, uh, that's the... Alcohol. Yeah. That's the... I, uh, I think there's two more. Aren't there a couple of new... Um, aren't there a couple of new ciders out from, bub- like, the Bubbles people, Rheingeist? I have, I tried the, it's like the Wally Melon or something. It's kind of like a spritzer. Yeah. It's not that great. But I did find some moonshine. Oh, nice. It's uh, white chocolate strawberry cream. Ooh, yummy. And I've been mixing it with the strawberries and cream Dr. Pepper. Oh, my God. (laughs) It is delicious. Yeah. I bet. Oh my god, that sounds amazing. It's delicious. That sounds amazing. Wow. Uh, oh, anyway, that's uh, the Cleveland Torso Murders. Thank you. Thank you. That was awesome. Thank you. I mean, I feel like we delved into it pretty, pretty, pretty hardcore. Yeah, I feel like we did good. Yeah. Cool. Um, yeah. Um, we have an email. We do. It's creepykentucky at gmail.com. We also have a Twitter and an Instagram. And an Instagram. I was just watching the wave the waveform of your voice when you said Instagram. And <laughs> it just like popped up when you said Graham Instagram. <laughs> Instagram. Instagram. <laughs> well, that, those are both at Creepy Kentucky. Yeah. yeah. Um, who do we want to? What the hell? Francis Sweeney, probably. Yeah, that's who I'm thinking. Yeah. Yeah. What the hell, Francis Sweeney? Yeah. Yeah. Ready? Yeah. Three, two, one. Francis, Francis Sweeney. Sweeney. What? What the, the hell? hell?